Welcome to Season 5, Episode 6 of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found inside a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. If you guys are finding value in the show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to leave me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. The reviews you leave really do help out the cause over here by having me show up just a little bit higher in those search results, and they keep the great guests coming week after week. Thanks in advance. I'm very proud to announce that I've recently partnered with Eco Green Industries. They're a fantastic nationwide supplier of high-quality extraction solvents, extraction-grade gas blends, and lab consumables. I personally used them as my ethanol supplier when I was running my lab, and they really are a class act. They're a little bit closer to the source than many of the other solvent suppliers out there, and they've been in the high-volume and wholesale game for some time now. Because of the volumes of the solvents and the gases they're moving, their pricing is always competitive, and they have great logistics nationwide. Their customer service is amazing, and you get a human who actually cares about your order and is willing to work with you every time you call. So the next time you need some high-quality solvents or extraction-grade gas in your lab, give EGI a buzz and see for yourself. Use the promo code MODEX, M-O-D-E-X, online, or mention the Modern Extractor on the phone, and you'll get 10% off your first order. And I'll earn a few bucks to keep the lights on over here at Modern Extractor Studios. I've personally used EcoGreen's products, I've done a ton of business with them over the years, and it's a company that I'm happy to attach my reputation to. You can check them out online at ecogreenindustries.com or give them a call, 530-378-4443. If you do place an order with this promo code, shoot me an email, jason at modernextractor.com. I'd be happy to return the favor any way that I can, from a quick chat about process optimization to helping connect you to folks in my network that may be great contacts for whatever you are trying to accomplish. Last week on the show, we talked to cannabis oil distillation pioneer Breaking Dabs about his start into the industry and the early days of making distillate. It was quite a long interview, and I decided to turn it into two episodes. So this week, we are joined once again by Breaking Dabs, Prepare to take notes as we are about to go step-by-step through his SOPs for WaterClear D9 Distillate. Well, that's enough out of me. Let's jump right back into the interview with Breaking Dabs, Dropping Knowledge. Let's see what a, what a Breaking Dabs run looks like. So you've got some crude to run, and now we're going to take that and we're going to run it through a short path to crank out the... Highest quality distillate as fast as possible. You want the SOP via radio. That's yeah, cool. you know it. <laughs> okay, so first I say this mantra and this and I say this prayer and I get this giant garb on and I make sure that I you know do the dance. The moon must be here. The sun must be there. The stars must be aligned. No, but uh, I start out. Uh, first thing I do is most of the time I work with uh, BHO. I work with butane crude or or some type of hydrocarbon crude. The reason being is the the polars that come out in ethanol are really kind of a pain in the ass to work with. There's a lot of ways you can pre-process them, and that's a tangent on its own. But usually it's butane crude, and what I'll do is I'll put it directly into the boiling flask. And a lot of people go, oh, you need a decarb. You need to get rid of the rest of the gas. I'm like, no, you don't. Live on the edge, you know? YOLO, whatever you want to say. Um, so I throw it directly into the boiling flask slowly because sometimes it likes to muffin. So that could take me a good couple hours to try and get it heated up and put in there. So you're loading it, you're putting it under vacuum, trying to get whatever muffining out, and then adding more material, putting it no, under vacuum. Usually I just wait for it to unmuffin itself. It usually happens pretty quickly. So you're just adjusting your vacuum level then? No, no. Uh, so I, I usually take the, the boiling flask out of the mantle – 
and put it either on the floor, you know, in, on a stand or anything like that, low so that I can actually put the material in there. And oftentimes it came to me in like food grade buckets and whatnot. And um, I pour it directly in there with a funnel. And I'll try and get it to where I know the height. I don't really worry about the volume because I know the volume of the material I'm working with. So it just minus, plus or minus rough. Um, I'll put it directly in there and then I'll throw it back on the mantle. I'll clean everything. So I dehumidify my room, um, which just doesn't seem like it makes a big difference. But with the amount of experimentation I've done, humidity ruins glass joint um, ceiling. So, and this is 10 to the negative 10. There's a reason I got there. Uh, so if you get rid of all the humidity, the first thing you need to do is um, acetone with super dry acetone, each uh, ceiling point. So all the joints are gone over with acetone. And then as soon as you acetone them, you seal them with grease and you put them together. So I build the whole system. Usually during this time, I also have a vacuum that's heating up because I'm a little lazy and I tend to do all of my, my uh, oil oil changes like right while I'm doing a run. So I'll have the ballast on and I'll have the, uh, the vacuum on for the first hour. And by the time I get it all set up, I'll drain out all that oil, put in a fresh load, double check the vacuum depth to, you know, negative four or four micron uh, or lower if it's an Edwards 30 or whatever you got. If, as long as it meets what it's supposed to meet, awesome. You know, I, some people use a soge vac to distill. You know, it doesn't get there, but, you know, teach their own. Uh, just so crank up the temperature until it works, right? Yeah, just rip it. 270 degrees Celsius <laughs> and it's not coming over. 280. I did that once and uh, couldn't figure out what was happening. And I, instead of actually waiting till the temperature cooled down, I pulled off the GL connection. The entire thing, everything inside ignited because the terpenes basically ignited inside the uh, boiling flask because they couldn't come out. And it's 270 Celsius and you still got terps there. Oh, and now here comes yeah. some oxygen. Yep. Auto ignition. So that one was fun. Luckily, it didn't explode. It just smoked the whole room real quick and uh, uh, popped off the monocow. But, uh, yeah, that was that was gross. Uh, that, that was, I think, one of the only runs I've actually ruined. I've also ruined one with uh, sodium hydroxide. I thought it was citric acid and because somebody had changed the location of the two vessels and I didn't smell the powder. Citric acid usually smells like pancakes to me. So I opened it, didn't think the fact that I couldn't smell it, poured in, you know, got the pH to 13 and everything turned purple and it's done. Like you might get some out of it, but it's done. Yeah. Not to your standards. That's for no, sure. No, I mean, purple distillate's cool and all, but like that stuff was like, like in volume, like when it was actually uh, uh, isolated, it was just dark, dark purple. The whole thing, you couldn't see through it. Gnarly. So ruined. But uh, so, okay, so back to the short pass. So then I pull the vacuum once the material is cooled to about 30C, and that usually takes by the time I've set up all, the entire system, oftentimes two cold traps. Uh, I have the single flask on there that I'm going to do on the swing arm. Uh, I called it a drop down originally, but Summit changed the name to a, a uh, swing arm. Um, I pull vacuum on it once the temperature is cooled below 30 and I don't touch the stir bar or the temperature at all. I pull vacuum until I get down to 100 micron and keep throttling the vac with the valve until it actually gets all the way down there and there's no muffin. So once that happens and I've got full vacuum, usually on a soge vac, um, just because I know it's got a high CFM rate and it'll hold it around that, that uh, uh, vacuum depth. Uh, the reason I use a soge vac or a high CFM is because of the the decarb that happens. The first step that you're really going to go through, the first fraction that you're going to have is actually gas. 
Um, so you're going to be turning up the temperature slowly from 30 to 60, and you, you're really trying to get the stir bar going. So the first thing you do is trying to get that stir bar moving, and it's going to wobble. Mm-hmm. And you can't see it, but you know what's happening. And it looks like, you know, it's going up and down because you see a little section that's pushing up and down. It's not moving. Before 60, it's not doing anything. So full vacuum, get it up to 60. And then when I know that stir bar is good at 60C, I throw it at 140. I just throw 140 Celsius on the, the mantle number and I walk away. So, and the stir bar should be at full speed the whole way through. And it usually cranks all the way through the turp fraction and it's into the heads fraction. And you'll start, it'll... Depending on your mantle, with my voltage I will and the size of the system, I will usually see 7 degrees of overshoot. So I'll set it to 140. That means 147, which keeps me below 155, which is that I know when I usually get cannabinoids, depending on the height of the head. There's so many factors, but on my systems, I know where they're going to be okay. So I can usually set it to 140, go make a sandwich, you know, come back in, and I'm usually pretty close to 140, and I just kind of watch it all happen. So from there, when it gets to about 140 and things stabilize, I'll turn on the hot condenser to 190 Celsius, which seems a little hot. You have to have very specific tools for that. The GL connections I worked with with Summit to actually get GLs that would hold that temperature and not melt and throw oil that was scalding all over the place. I almost got hit by some oil like that coming out of one of my big wipers one time. It was terrifying. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. That You don't even realize because it's not steaming, but that stuff is yeah. so hot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's scary. Especially on a wiper, you probably have like some high volume. Yeah, it was it shot like probably six feet across the lab, and I was just luckily not in front of it, but it was not far away. Yeah, and yeah, that's uh, terrifying. And then had to go over there and shut it off, and then change my shorts, <laughs> <laughs> and then actually called up um, the Chinese manufacturer that made the machine and was like, hey, look, there's zero reason why any of these things should come with barb fittings. Like, oh, because God, of yeah. a barb fitting, I almost just got, like, yeah. seriously burned. And, uh, you know, I knew it was an issue. That's the thing. I knew that that was yeah. stupid, yeah. but I didn't have the parts for it, so I just put it together. Yeah, I mean, I have – so speaking of parts, I have actually one of those giant, um, like – tool chests like a uh, snap-on tool chest it's uh about i think six feet long and full full depth like 24 36 inch depth and it's just full of adapters whether Mm -hmm. it's stainless glass whatever each drawer is labeled and everything well it's not labeled it's mentally labeled i don't write anything down um and each drawer has you know if i need an adapter to fit this or fix that or anything it's all there so that's my like bread and butter of r&d because I often get messages from people that are like, hey, I'm seeing this and I'm trying this and I can't seem to get that. I'm like, oh, let me set it up. And they're like, you can set that up at your place? I'm like, I can recreate pretty much any experiment you're doing with short path like, or even a lot of wiper stuff nowadays. But that's how you do R&D is you have all of the parts to do the things you don't normally need. But uh, let me let me circle us back here. Yeah. Uh, so right when I jumped in talking about Chinese machines almost burning me, we were talking about uh, getting your condenser to 190 with specialized fittings yeah. in order to be yeah. able to hold that oil. Yeah. So the special fittings, I mean, it's it's the GL connections, it's the Viton tubing, it's the correct oil, which the I think Extractor Depot has this uh, Silco silicone oil. Um, more expensive one it seems to be the only one that doesn't light on fire or turn um, black yeah or turn black or or some of them actually like they'll smoke at 170c 
um, the the Duratherm or not the Duratherm, the Dynaline 600 will get to about 170 and it'll start smoking. But I actually got Dynaline 600 to light on fire. Ooh. Um, my wiper, um, the original Chinese manufacturer, had sent me a giant 50 liter uh, heater circulator for it, which it's just such an overkill quantity of oil. But obviously, you do that so that the temperature never changes. It's very consistent. But the way it was set up inside the um, elements came in through above the liquid. And so the element above the liquid would heat up just as much as the element in the liquid. And it kept vaporizing this weird polymer that would attach to that little section. And I never noticed it because it was inside. But suddenly a flame and a bunch of smoke started coming out of my uh, circulator. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness. Stayed calm, totally calm. You know, there's a fire in a lab, totally calm. <laughs> I went over, grabbed the fire extinguisher, produced, or proceeded to cover my wiper with fire extinguisher materials in the middle of a run. I well, covered up all hot. my products and put them away, but I had to spend the next like month cleaning that thing before oh, I could start bro. up again. And it smelled awesome because it mixed in with the circulator. And I didn't even think to turn off the circulator, so all of it flooded into the pathways of the uh, wiper. Oh, it was such a fun cleaning experience. Like, I really, I think everyone should do it once in their life. <laughs> oh, so thank bad. you. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, my only fire incident was that. And, I mean, it took care of it, but I just couldn't believe it. I had a grease fire in a lab. I was so scared. Well, if that's the best kind of fire you could have in a lab, really. A grease fire? <laughs> well, I mean, all things considered, it wasn't flammable yeah, I mean, ethanol vapor or butane RIP vapor and knock on wood. It could have been a lot of options. Granted, I, I haven't been in an extraction in a very long time. Like I, ethanol extraction, is a, I, I did a little bit of that a long time ago. Um, but I've actually stayed away from butane because I've always kind of been scared of it. And I also, after all the CO2 work I did, I kind of didn't like touch anything green because I'm, I'm allergic to it. I get hives and I get my, I get asthma from it. I just don't like being near it. You know, I, I love working with, with liquids and distillations, super fun. And nice. so is the liquid chemistry of chromatography and whatnot. But so 190, to, 190, 190 <laughs> tangents, tangents, tangents. Um, you get up to 190. And then by the time that happens, you should be slowly scaling to about 165 Celsius. You should start seeing a little bit of heads. And you want to keep it really on the on the teeter-totter of allowing material to flow until you get to that 190 Celsius. You lost me for a second. So you said you're at 190 and you're going to scale it back down no, to that's the No, um, that's the hot condenser temperature. I'm condenser turning up the boiling flask. Boiling yeah. flask. Boiling Copy flask that. should be 145, and then you're slowly scaling to 160. The reason why you're at 190 isn't because you're trying to boil at 190. It just seems to be the temperature on my system that allows me to revaporize the heads fraction while keeping the distillate fraction liquid. Um, if it's actually 190 in the column, in that condenser on the head, I don't know because I really don't pay attention to that. I just know my system says 190 on it, and so that's the circulation temperature. Understood. Yeah, I did a lot of stuff like that, that where I knew what my machines were going to say, but yeah. who knows what the real deal that's is. That's why there's no ultimate SOP. I yeah. mean, the hardest one is wiper to me. I'm like, I can tell you how it works and what will work and what experiment to do in order to figure out how to make a better product, but I'm not going to give you a perfect number because unless I'm sitting in front of the machine, I don't know what your machine's going to say. Absolutely. I keep interrupting you here, though. So we're 190. 190. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... It's 
you scale up to 165 on the boiling flask and you should start seeing a little bit of drippage but a whole lot of gas that's recollecting in the cold traps because I just connect my my laminar flow directly to the cold traps and so you should start seeing stuff collect over there or at least recondensing on that second pathway after the drop off so you have that flask that you roll down is still facing upwards and you're allowing stuff to recondense past that flask and so you're trying to find this this happy medium between the temperature of the boiling flask and the temperature of the condenser so i start at 190 but i will actually slowly bring that temperature down as i increase the boiling flask temperature and also as I'm switching the vacuum depth, because once you get close to the main body, you want to get an ultimate vacuum of like, you know, 10 or less micron. 10 is a huge difference. So I'll then flip to an Edwards 30 about the same time when I know that I'm no longer collecting terps in the cold trap and things are going to be settled. Sometimes I'll actually scale back all the way down to 100 Celsius on the boiling flask, pull the receiving flask of the cold trap off so that I can make sure I have a clean system. But that's usually on a second pass because... And I'll get to that. I won't say why until then. Um, but I'll usually switch out or switch the pump and increase the boiling flask temperature. And if I start to see distillate, like what I know is distillate, appearing on the other side of the drop-off for the, the main body flask that I'm going to bring down, um, then I'll lower the condenser temperature. And so there's this teeter-totter. There's no perfect number, again, on what will work on the condenser versus the boiling flask. You have to kind of inversely proportionate them. So as you see one increase, you should be lowering the other. Oftentimes, when I get lazy, I'll reset the condenser to 120, and I'll shoot the boiling flask temperature to 185 because it'll overshoot to 192, because seven degrees of difference is what I usually see. And my boiling flask temperature is usually 193 by the time I get to main body. So if I can expect 193 and about 120 to work, I just allow it to figure it out. And when I see it's right, I just drop the flask. If I'm really trying to teeter-totter real slow because I want this run to be absolutely perfect and get the most amount of yield in a single pass, depending on what the client wants for tolls, you know, if they only want a single pass and I want to maximize yield, go a little slower with it. But if it's just me and I'm just trying to run done this material and I'm going to clean up my heads fraction later, because sometimes you just have a bunch of heads that you keep and a bunch of tails that you keep and you can make more distillate out of there because it's it's in there. You can get it out. Rainy day fund. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and those are always helpful for new gear. Yeah. Question for you in regard to making the decision to drop your main body receiving flask in. Uh, oftentimes you hear people refer to fool's gold, uh, mm -hmm. which is, well, why don't you explain what that is? Fool's gold is something that looks like cannabinoids, but it's actually a fraction that's right above. It does have cannabinoids in it, but it will kind of coil, but have a slightly lower solidifying temperature. We used to use 40 Celsius on the condenser and you could tell that it was still fool's gold because it will flow really easily and it won't coil. If it coils, it's oil, that whole concept back then. So coiling meaning collecting on the bottom of the, the receiving flask. Receiving flask. And actually like up. spinning, yeah, in a little dance that she does. Um, the fool's gold, though, at 190C will usually have an opaque look to it and usually will have streams of, you could tell it's not mixing well because the heads fraction will usually actually be very polar and it doesn't fully mix with cannabinoids very well. And it's a lot of times, sometimes, uh, they call sugars and uh, fats and waxes and lipids that are left over. And since I'm working with BHO that's unwinterized, I'm literally just throwing 
I'm seeing all these different fractions that you don't normally see if you winterize before first pass, but we're doing it my way. So I'm throwing everything in the boiling flask, just cut it down because a lot of reasons with ethanol, I don't want to have terps in there because they're going to stay in there when I boil the ethanol back out and then my ethanol is no longer as useful. Um, it can change the amount of lipids you can pull out in one pass because it'll have other stuff that makes lipids more soluble in the ethanol, like terps. So, or it'll actually add water which I don't want to add water necessarily to my ethanol. And if I reuse it multiple times, because, you know, we try to run a green system in my lab. If we're doing it my way, it's green as possible. As much as possible. I respect that. You know, I haven't figured out a way to run diesel off my terp fraction yet, but it's soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I, I will usually see a bunch of fractions that happen right before the distillate. The distillate will usually be clear and it will be consistent. There will be no other mixing things in it. And you'll see this clear drip that'll start at about like a drip a second. And when you start to see that about 172 Celsius to 177, that's usually my, my marker, um, then I'll start looking to really keep that, that uh, condenser temperature higher so that I'm only getting distillate. And then as I approach 193, I'll bring down that temperature finally from the condenser so that I can um, lower that so I'm not shooting a bunch of distillate over the drop-off. So, yeah, we get to the main body fraction. And we're also firing off heads fraction directly into the cold trap. And usually, depending on the size of the run, you'll get about a liter of heads fraction and terp fraction for a 20-liter system. So you can expect a, a one-liter flask. To, that's why it's one liter on a, um, on a summit system. Is That was the size that we found worked for a 20-liter to keep all of that stuff in one flask. Um, pull main body at 193. Sometimes I'll go to 205 maximum on a 20-liter. Uh, if I go any higher, I can't keep it from from overshooting, uh, as well as any higher than that, you start isomerizing the cannabinoids to D8. And typically, I can keep the D8 number under 1%, like no matter if it's been through two passes or three even. So it, it's proper temperature. Never hit 120 or 220 anymore. As soon as I can get away from 220, I did, because that was the problem, I feel like, with all of the early understandings is we'd get 60 to 70% from a test result from a lab and they'd never give us the chromatograph. On a chromatograph, if you see the second peak past THC delta nine, they wouldn't tell you what it was because they didn't know. Mm -hmm. But when we found out what delta eight was and we realized that that was being caused by not only potentially carbon or any type of acid, it was caused by temperature, then you, know, you try to avoid that as much as possible and I ticked it down by temperature. And then it was how to maintain that all the time. Wide bore, big stir bar, fast as possible. And so my first pass, I'll usually get into main body in about an hour to an hour and a half on a 20 liter. And then depending on the size of the system and what system you have, it should take between one hour to six hours of main body, depending on the head on a 20 liter system. So with the new heads that I designed with Summit, the only problem being that they're too fast and you can't slow it down. The cannabinoids want to overshoot the main body flask at 12 liters an hour. Um, yeah, that one's crazy. Um, it's, and that, that takes a lot of extra gear to be able to handle. Like my, I mean, besides the huge cold traps, the cooling down, you actually end up trying to cool the condensers. Like I've not found a really good, uh, chiller that, that cools down the condenser cold enough to actually keep all of the distillate in one place because it just rains like crazy and it'll just be shooting into your cold trap. So you got to like add another flask here and do this and it's just 
it's it's a mess to try and work with a 20 liter going at 12 liters an hour. And a lot of people really haven't seen that. They go, oh, it doesn't go past four. I'm like, four is amazing. I mean, you realize that we used to do 300 milliliters on a two liter and that was a feat. Yeah. Four liters an hour. And I, that's another thing that I see with a lot of companies where they're like, oh, it does three liters an hour. I'm like, past three, you're cooling the condenser to keep it going. So does it go three or are you lying? Because I know what that takes. Oh, man. As soon as you start talking to equipment manufacturers about what their gear can do, like, I don't mm. know if I've ever gotten an honest answer. Yeah. Or sometimes it's an actual number, but it's, it's the the, num the number of input liters versus the number of output liters. Or quality the of the input material yeah, exactly. or how many vacuums you have attached. I mean, if you set up my system, which is pretty much dealing with a top fuel system, if you set that up in an average lab, it'll do this. If I work with something else, it'll do that. And I always ask somebody to send me pictures of their, their gear because then I can look at it and tell them how fast their machine should run, not how much they should get with this new head. Because if they don't have the cold traps or the, the uh, vacuum pumps or they don't have the condenser to be able to handle it, they're not going to necessarily get any benefit from this new head. They probably will, depending on what it is. But it, if they ask me versus asking a manufacturer, I'm the one in the field doing it. So... Usually, I mean, there's a few companies that have their own techs in-house, but oftentimes people want to sell stuff. I'm not trying to sell anybody anything. I mean, the subscription's one thing on the website, but that was because I had been getting so many, I get a lot of the same questions and I don't mind answering them multiple times, but I get a lot of the same things and I felt like it was easier for me to just put it up so that everybody could just go to a place. Yeah. As well as a lot of people for a number of years, because I was the only one giving free information, they kept trying to give me donations. And I'm like, I don't take donations. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know how to do that. I'm just, somebody told me, or I know who it was, Colombo told me a long time ago when I first started and was like really putting out information and was asking him a lot of questions and realizing that he was giving information about the sea bleach and whatnot. I'm like, like, why are you doing this? And like, you know, how does this work? And like, it's, it's amazing to actually finally talk to someone who wants to develop concepts and, and share information. He's like, well, if you give it all away for free, man, you might be rich or you, you'll be rich. And I was like, well, okay, I'll just give everything away for free. And I mean, technically it worked. Yeah. So congratulations, man. That's well, great. You know, it helps. Um, so the website is one thing when it comes to giving away information, but I think, I don't even know if that was going anywhere. Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> we were, we were actually right in the middle of your, um, distillation SOPs. Yeah. We switched the flask. We're collecting. Uh, you, don't, you don't even switch it. You roll it down. Roll the reason for that is every time you open the system, you will destroy the material. That's what I meant. That's what I was picturing in my head when I said switch. Uh-huh, sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm a stickler for being exact on that one. But uh, you, roll, you roll the flask. Yeah, which is actually, it's that, that is part of the setup, is trying to make sure that you can roll that flask. And you can't actually test it too many times. You just have to test the wiggle room. So when you do the setup, you have to make sure the cold traps aren't too sturdy. And sometimes when I roll the flask, I'll actually unhook the clamps for the cold traps and I'll balance and wiggle the cold traps back and forth while I lower the flask. Because if you're working with a 20 liter system and you have a 10 liter boiling flask, it's often, oftentimes the amount of material that comes out of one is the amount to go into a smaller system. So I have a 20 that works with a 10, a 10 that works with a five, a, ten, a five that works with a two. Mm -hmm. So I put a 10 liter boiling flask up there so the main body's in one pass and that flask is heavy. And trying to roll it down, you have to wiggle the cold traps. I've done this. I did this in front of um, 
I think the guys from Aerometrics at a, a little experiment when we were going over this, the fraction finder. Uh, I had intended to bring that up. And yeah. I, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, my tan just pitted against no, no, other no, places. No, no worries. But, uh, so I was doing that, and it got stuck a little bit on the way down because I didn't actually do the, the glass setup, and so he didn't grease it right. You know, a little through my teeth, but everybody walked out because they're like, "You're gonna what?" And I'm like, "Just." Just, it'll be fine. They're like, but I'm like, just walk out if you have to. I got this. And one, uh, the owner of Aerometrics and uh, uh, Digivac stayed. And yeah, Tim stayed and he just watched. And he's like, the vacuum depth didn't change one micron. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, man, it's just, you just have to sometimes just wiggle it to get it to move. Because glass joints, it's man-made. It's not perfectly straight. So sometimes they're not, you know, they're not aligned or that grease isn't fully greased along the whole edge. Glass on glass with grit, it sticks. So, yeah. so you get the boiling or you get the receiving flask, which is a boiling flask, rolled down. Uh, you collect main body for one to six hours, or depending on the size of the system, a two liter. The way I have it set up can do uh, main body in fifteen minutes. Five liter, forty five. Um, Ten liters usually one to three, and then you have one to six uh, typically on my on my twenty liter. Fifty liter, I won't talk about it. <laughs> that thing's a monster. Um, I had actually almost, that was a feat just trying to get to run. Like the whole concept of being able to turn from 60 degrees to 120 or even to 60 degrees on a 50 liter. I blew out the thermal well out of my 50 liter and it hit the roof and it spewed material out of the boiling glass and tried to start pouring out. One time I had a flask explode on me when it was trying to muffin out because I just wanted to pour crude in there. I didn't want to work with decarbed material. I didn't have time to decarb. By the time you hit 50 liters, like at that point, you can almost if, get if, a wiper. Well, and if you want the the control that the short path offers you, there's spinning band is an option that's similar yeah. to that. Well, spinning band um, has its benefits in heads fraction separation from main body, but I personally don't find it that useful. Other than that, like not to really. You know, everybody's got their own thing, and if it works for you, it works for you. I don't care, you know. The theoretical plates that, that they have on them, I, th- I find head interesting. Fraction. Yeah. So the hardest re- fraction to remove is head fraction. That's why I have a balancing act with the condenser temperature because you have to find that its sweet spot could be 123 or could be 134. It could be 110. It could be 92 degrees. Well, it's a combination of the two, right? Yeah. So, But finding that, everybody goes, oh, you go down by 5. I go down by 2 sometimes. Like, I really try to even sometimes 0.5. Because it can be a sweet spot that is really, really slight in order to get that purest fraction. Off a first pass, the main body, once it solidifies to room temperature, you should be able to drop that stir bar into that flask and it should bounce two or three times and it should sound like glass off a single pass from BHO crude. Oh, wait, not from BHO crude because you have to winterize still. But like if you winterized before first pass, because I used to do that for my five liter runs, um, you should it should bounce like glass. There should be no heads fraction, and all you're doing is the you'll have a little bit of heads on the second pass and a little bit of tails, but it's so minor. So we got the main body. When we start to see some an actual color coming up the column or like overshooting a little bit, you'll start to see kind of this yellow fraction. And if you get to orange, you've gone a little too far. But you should start to see pigment in the head. And it's usually when you've collected what you consider 50% of what the amount you put in there. So if you put 12 liters, you should see six, and then you should start to see this color. And that should be about one to two liters worth of tails after that. So at that point, I'll usually cool it to 140 because I've got most of the main body out. I'm not too worried about the tails fraction having a little bit of D8. 
Um, and 140 is actually about the safest, highest temperature, but I try to go down to 100, usually if I'm going before main body, just for safety. But uh, 140 degrees, I'll turn it down, I'll close off the vacuum, pull off that boiling flask that's full of my first pass, and then throw on a flask as quick as possible, pull down the vacuum as quick as possible, and then increase the temperature. The problem is, is with a wide bore setup, while you have the vacuum that depletes really quickly, what ends up happening is that main body will shoot right back up the column. I don't know if you've ever seen that when you turn the vac back on after changing fractions. Yeah. It tries to jump out. So if you turn it down to 140, you usually can avoid that rather than trying to throttle the vac. That way you can just throw the vac back on. And then you jump back up to, say, 200 to 210 at most and just try to crash it over as much as possible. Typically with BHO, you'll have a lot of the lipids in the tails fraction and you'll have some of the lighter boiling lipids in the heads fraction and like half or a quarter of the amount of lipids will go into the main body, which makes winterization a lot faster off that second, uh, off that first pass. Are we pretty close to finished on this, this run that yeah, we yeah. just did? We just went through tails. Uh, yeah, tails and you, I'll cool it down, pull it apart. Gotcha. Yeah. So now, now you've got this distillate that you have, uh, that you plan to run again, but you're going to winterize first. Yeah. So, six to seven liters comes out of a 20 liter from there. I usually fill that boiling flask. Well, I'll heat it up on a mantle because I've got a 10 liter mantle. I'll put a stir bar in it. And when it's all liquid, I'll add the same volume of ethanol. I usually crank it up to about 150 Celsius on the mantle with the thermometer on the outside of the glass, because I found if I put it in there, it might overheat, but all I'm trying to do is liquefy it. So I'll just heat it up with a hot temperature on the outside. It usually gets to about 60 to 80 Celsius on the inside before it liquefies completely. Stir bar must be moving completely. I must have a tiny bit of vortex. Then I add the same amount of volume of ethanol to fill the flask. And then I use carboys. So I use the, the, the ethanol from Summit comes in a carboy. Uh, and the amount in there, I will... I use those to winterize in because I've already got the container. We're going green use them, got them. Um, I'll fill those with, uh, with what comes out of the boiling flask and then I'll top it off to 18 liters because those carboys are easy to pour or do anything with 18 versus 20. They're a 20 liter, uh, carboy, but you fit, put 18 in it, it's easier to pour. Um, I'll throw those in a negative 20 freezer. And from there I'll wait overnight. And I finally get to go to sleep that day. Um, uh, usually while I'm doing this and heating all this and transferring, it's all in one day and I'm cleaning glassware at the same time. So I throw limonene in the boiling flask, uh, dump out the, the tar fraction that's left in the boiling flask and then heat up the limonene and the limonene will actually clean the rest of the glass for me. And I'll, I have a couple of collectors for that. And that's something I can reuse. I can boil the, uh, if I want to take all of my limonene and put it in a 20 liter flask and fill it to like eight liters, I can boil the limonene back out and then throw out the sludge all in one batch. That way I can reuse my solvents from there. Um, so I'll clean out the, the system while I'm doing this whole process. And then whenever, once everything's done, I go to bed. So, and usually with a 20 liter system, that could be 24 hours of time. Wow. So uh, I'm going to ask you about this limonene thing here. I was always very uh, reluctant to go that route because I would find that it would get hung up in my cold traps. It would get hung up in like, catch in various places and then it just 
shoots your vacuum right in the foot. This is in a wiper. It's not in a short path. I oh, for cleaning? I, yeah, yeah. I don't have a ton of uh, experience with uh, well, with short path, to be honest. A lot of times with the limonene, even with short path, you want to actually go back over with ethanol or acetone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, or water even. So I even had to disassemble my trap at one point. I had one of the, the steel traps on It was my... probably getting stuck in your pumps. So the, if you had outlet pumps on your, your wiper... A lot of times they'll they won't allow thin liquids to go through, and then those will constantly boil off during your run, and they'll keep spitting it into your cold trap during the run and stuff. But if you follow them or you turn up the pump speed really high, it'll eventually push it through. Gotcha. But uh, usually I'll do water and ethanol together or something like that, and that will usually push stuff all the way over or allow it to go through all the limonene to get out. Because if you've got ethanol in the system, that should pull into your pump, and you just clean your pump real quick. So, but yeah, it gets stuck above the outlet pumps. Did you have outlet pumps? I didn't on that machine, but uh, after getting outlet pumps on the next machine, I will never go to a machine that does not have them again. Yeah. Aren't they great? <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah I can't awesome. imagine working without them because so many reasons. You get start with uh, started with a run and you have to choose a different temperature for your jacket temp. And you're like, oh, but if I could just get that little bit out and then pull vacuum again and then start over and not have that happen... Because the initial part of the run, the vacuum depth's different in the system, and it's boiling at a different temperature, so it pulls more tails fraction over. There's just such a – it's such a chore to try and start off a, a run perfectly with, with boiling flasks. I hear you there. Uh, so we've got your winterized. So wait till it gets down to the negative 20. Um, I set up my lenticular, and I don't really talk about these much because they were kind of um, – somebody – when I, f I first heard about it, you know, he tried to ask me to keep it secret, so I really never said much about them. But lenticulars are— I got are, a whole episode about them. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're new now, or they're, they're around now. But when I first started with them, I was like, okay, I'll respect that. You know, you gave me a tech. Sure. Yeah. So uh, lenticular I'll set up. I usually use for 6 liters to 15 liters of material. Um, I will make an addition of 4 to 1 or 5 to 1 in ethanol. So I'll have 5 parts ethanol, 1 part oil. So and this is you're further diluting it from the, the top it off yeah, to eighteen off. liters. Because now you're adding five x that eighteen liters. So if I have a ten liter boiling flask with six liters in it, and I top it off to you know to the top, and then pour that into a carboy, that's only about twelve liters total. Uh, I'll top it off to eighteen, which gives me about a two to one. And then I'll split that between two carboys and then top them off to where they're actually at a four to five to one. Under somewhere in there. It doesn't have to be exact, but yeah. you keep it low when you do it at, at this in this way because you don't need all the extra ethanol to get through all the extra fats. And the lower um, amount of ethanol will mean that you'll get all the fats out in one or however many passes you have to do. Mm -hmm. uh, because 10 to 1, typically, sometimes it'll leave some fats in there. And though it might not matter, it matters to me. Um, I respect that. So I'll throw it all in the freezer at a four to five to one between four or five to one. And then I'll leave it till it gets to negative 20 and I'll set up the lenticular. And usually for six to 15 liters, I can go through one 12 inch uh, lenticular filter and I just grab them. I use haze filtration. Um, they've got a, a good skid. I have my own pump set up for that. Um, Using a diaphragm pump to push it? Sometimes. Uh, I did for a while, though, have a pump that I got from Cole Palmer that was an impeller pump. And it didn't – I don't like compressors from working in the CO2 era. Like, I'm so sick of the sound of a compressor just going off and scaring me. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I, uh, I typically use the diaphragm nowadays, though, because the other one broke and I just never replaced it. But if somebody wants it, I can get the rest of the parts. And, you know, I'm going to be selling a lot of gear pretty soon here because we're changing directions. Nice. But uh, so I set up the lenticular and I well, see nowadays all I do um, is I will fire that material into that lenticular as fast as I possibly can get it in. I get it out because the problem with most lenticulars is they're made of a big chunk of stainless steel. And that temperature takes a while to actually cool back down. With the uh, Indofab, we actually created a lenticular that has a, a cup around it, which I'm sure somebody else is going to make this now. But it has a, um, a cup that you can put dry ice and acetone in so that you can get it pre-chilled to negative 80 before you actually introduce your material. This means that you'll actually increase the amount of lipids you can remove, and it doesn't matter how slow you go through it. So I'll try to rush it through as much as possible. My lenticular can handle safely about 20 to 30 PSI. So it starts to stack up, though, by the time I get to about 10 liters, I'll start to see pressure increase. So that last little bit of material usually takes a little bit longer to go through, but I found that it's safe. My end product is great. I've checked it with, you know, one micron filters, nothing comes out. But negative 20C is what you need to be able to actually remove it. And I think it's about 20 micron is all you need to remove everything. But everybody goes to negative 80 and one micron, and I'm like, what are you doing? There's not much, there's not much left. If it's there, you'll get it out in distillation on the second pass anyway. But um, get it through, and then I follow it with about 10 gallons of um, cold ethanol that I had thrown in that same freezer. That way I push everything through that lenticular cartridge because one cartridge, once you use it, I never reuse it, and those lipids are, once it warms up, they'll go right through. So it's tossed at the end of that. So you'll only do one run on a cartridge. But it's 20 liter, it's, uh, it's more like 6 to 15 liters of distillate. That's a lot for one cartridge. Yeah. You know, it's $250 for the cartridge versus trying to reuse it in the headache. I've tried them. I, I'd rather not have the headache. And it's kind of like doing an oil change on a vacuum pump. It's $6 in oil. Do the, do the oil change. You're going to yeah. thank yourself when you don't spend two to three extra hours waiting for this thing to distill. Our lab was an ethanol extraction lab, so we could get away with a little bit longer use yeah. on them. Yeah, well, ethanol extraction doesn't have as much lipids. That's why you're using ethanol to do the winterization. And if you're doing room temperature ethanol, you still don't have quite a bit. You're mostly using the lenticular for particulate, which at that point, you don't have to worry about temperature because the particulate is going to be particulate no matter what. Um, but, yeah, I'm we're doing my run. <laughs> my bad. Uh, so... From there, I remove the ethanol. It'll usually come straight out of the lenticular into a container that wheels over to the um, the roto. Um, my roto has a coil that goes into the basin, and it will take that negative 20C that's coming out and get it to probably about 100 to 120 Fahrenheit. Uh, so it should be hot going into the roto, so I should be able to distill that at about 10 gallons an hour out of a 50 liter. So... If I have a five to one on, let's say, 10 liters, that's 60 liters of ethanol, which uh, is about 20 gallons, I want to say. So that should come out in about two to three hours. Uh, I usually set my, my roto to about 120 to 130 Celsius. So real hot. It's an oil bath. I use that same silicone oil. Uh, when it gets done and all the ethanol's out, I'll cook it up to 155 under vacuum to get the last little 
it's usually a liter to two liters of extra ethanol. And then when it cools back down to about 90 Celsius, I do all this in like one day. The second day is terrible. Um, You're moving. Yeah, because I feel like once you get into solvent, get it out as soon as possible. Because yeah. it turns red, it oxidizes all the different problems. If you get it in the short path, you're there till it's done. Um, so anything as much as I can. If it's also, if it's still hot, great. It takes so long to heat the stuff up. Why not work with it? Yeah. So this next process, I get it down to 100 Celsius or a little bit below, and I start introducing, without having that coil, I'll introduce heptane directly into the roto. Well, it's still under a little bit of vacuum so that I don't push heptane into the room. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, with... Even if you're in a C1D1, I'd rather not have hydrocarbon going into an exposed room, period. I just don't want that life. Agree. So I keep it under a little bit of vacuum, and it'll usually cool the material down to about 60C or so. Uh, and I'll introduce enough to double the amount of fluid. So if I had 10 liters, I now have 20 liters in a 50-liter boiling flask. From there, um, I pull off that dipstick that attaches to the roto. And I introduce a, an actual siphon tube. The siphon tube is attached to, directly to um, a reactor. And I'll siphon out that fluid, because I'll have mixed it in the roto, I'll siphon out that fluid directly into a 50-liter reactor. Now it fills half a 50-liter reactor. You can then um, mix that against water wash. So if you actually want to water wash, I, I do water washes on everything. I've been doing them for three or four years because I just found I could get, even if it didn't look good in volume, it was water clear and cart. And that was what I was after. So I water wash. And these days, I'm only water washing to prep for MagSil. Because everything I do nowadays is going through MagSil. Or everything oh, I was man. Doing. I didn't know we were getting into this, run. I'm excited. I had yeah. all these questions to ask you later about all that other <laughs> stuff. So here, great. There's lots of other powders that I like. A lot of media that I like. Um, a lot of the reason, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's really useful. Uh, but MagSil's pretty much my go-to because pesticides, any, anytime you've got pesticides, it's just easy to just blindfold yourself, throw it through Maxil. It'll get rid of most of them. And if it doesn't get rid of them, it's not allowed in the legal market anyway. So, you know, the cl anything chloro, forget it. Removing that is such a pain. It's so hard to do. And it's in order to get under the detectable levels, you have to usually dilute that oil. But I go into Maxil for color, potency, and removing those pesticides. So I throw it into the reactor and I'll mix it against um, saline. The saline I prep, I have a 20 gallon. Let me, let me catch up with you. So the heptane is now, has been boiled off on the rotavap. No, I added it to thin it out. So you've got heptane with your oil now yeah. in the reactor. So if we're doing 10 liters of material, we've got 20 liters in a solution. Copy that. And we go in directly into the reactor because the reactor has the ability to pull vacuum. So I siphon out of the – safely because I no longer use my mouth to siphon. That was a dumb <laughs> idea years ago. Yeah, not with heptane. <laughs> no, with heptane. Probably not a good idea. I don't know why. Um, but I siphon out of there directly into the, uh, the reactor. Sometimes you got to add a little bit more heptane to get the last little bit, but – one run, if I want to do that for a client and they want all of their material done in one run, you get you can get everything out. And you can each transition should be able to clean the prior gear beforehand, other than the short path. The short path, just clean it with limonene, toss that away. It's fine. It's not very much. Um, but even the carboys, I pour that ethanol into those carboys I had used to go through the lenticular. And when I do that, I'll clean that carboy out so that there's no residual material. And that first batch of ethanol that's kind of got a little bit of material will be the first thing to go into lenticular. Mm -hmm. And then I follow everything with clean ethanol. 
I follow everything with clean heptane and add it to my final material. So add it to the material that's in the reactor. So it's got 20 liters in the reactor, and we're going to mix that against about 14 liters of saline. The saline I created with, I have a 20-gallon Blickman um, element-heated giant vessel that's got a pour spout on it. And I got that from brewing beer. Brewing supplies. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've got some Blickman pumps from brewing beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all, we all made some beer. Beer's good. I put and, them to work in the extraction industry too. Yeah, I mean, that's where it came from. I, I, yeah. I made beer at one point, and I was like, this thing's great. Um, so it's got a 240-volt uh, heater in an element, so I can heat up water, like 20 gallons of water in like 20 minutes. So uh, there's a whole procedure on how to actually do that. Uh, you put enough water to cover the thermometer inside the Blickman. It's a 20-gallon vessel, and this covers all the elements. And then you pour in all of the salt that you need, and it's 20 pounds of salt for 20 gallons of water. So you may not put 20 gallons of water into this Blickman, but it's enough to cover the thermometer with the salt in it. Then you heat up that water as fast as you can to 180 Fahrenheit. Then you fill the rest of the vessel while also mixing with a mixer up to 20 gallons. And by the time it gets to the top, it's room temperature and all the salts dissolved. <laughs> nice. Done. And go. so you can mix it on, it's on tap. It's salt water on tap right there. So I take 14 liters of that and I'm going to mix that against that 20 liters. Do you know why it's 14 liters? I don't. In a five-gallon bucket, the safe pouring angle is 14 <laughs> liters. Yep. So right. like every every little detail, I've done it so many times that it's like, down to that, I've just, I've got it, that's nailed. So that one, 14 liters, I would do 20, but it's easier to do 14 and just keep that math going. And it seems to be enough. Uh, you do it one time at neutral pH, and what you're doing is you're checking for anything that's going to pop out. Like you'll have these, if you're working with ethanol, a lot of times ethanol extract will have a lot of black compounds that come out. They're an amine group that seems to be water-soluble. When you Once you break it down, like they're water-soluble, that's why they come out with ethanol. But they seem to come out um, when you do the water washes. Otherwise, they stay in the oil, and it kind of grosses me out. Mm -hmm. But um, you get rid of those. But if you see that, you know that you can hit it with low pH and get rid of it because it'll fall into the water solution. And I've tested that to figure out if it goes in the water or the heptane. And it's low pH of about 4. Um, so you check the pH for that. You look for any other type of um, emulsions and you check for color of the water. If you have a ton of pink, you got to remove that. The pink uh, seems to be like an oxide cannabinoid. Um, and if you want to go for water wash or water clear or anything like that, you've got to remove that. But typically if you're going fast like this through all the cycles, you don't really see much of it, especially with BHO, as long as it's fresh BHO and even stuff that's a year old. And if it's extracted and put into BHO a year later, you should still not see very much pink. But um, I'll do the one at neutral. I'll do two high just to remove the, the high pH of 8.4 using sodium bicarbonate, which is about 18 grams for 14 liters. So I've never done any uh, water washing in all of my experience in extraction. So when you say the first one neutral, so that's one salt water setup that you've just created at room temperature. Yeah. You're going to run that through the material and then... What is needed between that first wash and the second wash? Okay. So 
uh, I mix them. So as I pour in that water, I've got the mixer kind of slow. But once I get all of the um, the 14 liters of water in there, I'll turn up the speed so that they're really fully mixing, but not too high because the glass reactors are kind of dangerous. Like use about like 150 RPMs. Um, I'll fully mix it for about five minutes and then allow it to settle with the mixer at like 18 RPMs. The reason being is it'll help any uh, emulsions to find its own place and it'll help the heptane and water layer to separate. The reason why we use saline is imagine you're holding a balloon in air. It may go up or down. Say it's got just regular air in it. It'll do whatever. But if you put it underwater and you submerge it, this is a weird analogy, but it'll make sense at the end. If you submerge it, it'll want to jump out of the water, right? Mm -hmm. So heptane will kind of mix with water when there's water-soluble compounds in it. So if you're trying to pull out water-soluble compounds in regular water, sometimes the heptane doesn't want to separate, and you end up removing some of your um, your cannabinoid yield in the water layer because it's just stuck. It, you get this milky water that doesn't want to separate. So the reason for the brine of uh, using the salt is to actually make sure that they separate quickly. But if you get an emulsion, you have to stir it very slowly so that it finally separates. So I'll walk away while that's happening. I'll come back, it's separated. I'll look at it, evaluate, and I'll remove that 14 liters of water or as much as I can quickly. I don't try to get that last little bit of water. You so don't need that right now. you're removing that with uh, just well, out of the a, bottom of the reactor? Yeah, the, the reactor is a giant SEP funnel. Okay. I mean, that's Great. how I consider it. I, I used to use SEP funnels when we do two liter runs, but you know, at a certain point when you're at a certain size, I'm not working with a SEP funnel that's bigger than a six liter. Yeah. So I remove all that water as best I can, and then we put in another batch. And that batch will be pH adjusted when it's in the actual reactor. I don't adjust all of my waters prior because I don't know what I'm going to need. Mm -hmm. And even though I've got water on tap, I don't want to make like another 20 gallons of saline. And if I don't use it all, it sits. Uh, so I'll throw it in there. I'll pH adjust it. And then I'll mix it all up for another five minutes. Um, so I use the reagent grade uh, sodium bicarbonate, and that's going to adjust the pH to 8.4. If you overshoot it, it's a buffer. So you can't break 8.4, which is a safe pH. If you go above 10, you start to kind of really screw up the material. And you also can make uh, the THC water-soluble, but to a degree that's not really beneficial. I mean, it's water-soluble, but for starters, if you were trying to make like a drink out of that, nobody wants to drink sock water, but that's what it tastes like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it also... It kills your yield and it kills your color, all sorts of things. Making so, it water soluble when you're about to dump a bunch of water that you're going to discard yeah, later in there is not uh, a good idea. Not a benefit. Um, and it also color changes the uh, the cannabinoids. So 8.4, and I'll do that twice. So I'll, I'll drain that water. Usually it's a little bit pink because it's removing some stuff that's, I, I, don't, I guess they're, they're any, a phenol group, uh, phenol. Is that what it is? Um, some type of, some, some, pigment that you get rid of and it, it benefits you chemistry words <laughs> i don't necessarily know what it does but i know that it benefits the process um so i'll do two washes of that that's usually all i need to get rid of most of the pink and all i'm trying to do is just break off these things in big chunks because magsil is magic sill it's magic powder uh so i removed two two batches of 14 liters of water at 8.4 ph and then we reverse the ph to 4.5 or roughly Four to five is usually about where it's at. Depends on your water. Depends on what you what you need to add. But I use citric acid, which can get you down to two. So you kind of have to be careful. But 
a spoonful of medicine goes makes the medicine go down. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. So I use about a spoonful of citric acid in 14 liters, and that usually gets me to about four to uh, four to five pH. Okay. And I do two of those washes, um, and it'll usually be crystal clear. But there's a lot of stuff it pulls out, and it's amine groups. It's Stuff you can't see in the water layer, but if you put heptane above it afterwards and switch the pH, you'll see all sorts of stuff end up in the heptane. Um, and it also, the reason for going for the low pH is Magacil has a pH of about 10.6 to 10.9. So it has a pH to it. So if there's any residual water or if there's any water in the Magacil, it will react at a high enough pH that it'll actually ruin your uh, product, which is a lot of reasons why I ended up getting that unicorn piss, the the purple distillate, is because the the Magsil without pH adjusting it before going into it, you will you'll actually scorch it. Okay. So now we're going into Magsil. We've already gotten all the water out, and I use a set funnel, a small set funnel, out of my reactor to re remove that last bit of uh, water. I try to get everything out, spin it, spin everything in the reactor. And then, you know, remove any water that shows up and just keep checking it about three or four times. You can add, actually add sodium sulfate to it, and then I'll really remove any extra water. But I try to just do as best I can. The one benefit of working with uh, hydrocarbon and Magsil is most of the water ends up sitting on top of it if it's beaded at all. But much as you possibly get out. So the Magsil amount that I found works is based on the size of the column versus the leaders that you're working with or you're theoretically working with. If your, end, if your product that came out was six liters of oil, you should be working with 45 cubic inches times six liters to, depending on how clean your oil is. Say you just got mains and tails together, I would use about 55 cubic inches. And there's a, if you just look up on Google, cylinder volume calculator, it'll give you a quick hack to be able to just figure out your width of your column and how high of a bed you need to make. So on about 10 to 15 liters, you need to use about, I think it's 11 to 13 inches in a 12 inch wide column. Um, I had a really cheap bunch of stainless that I had gotten from a number of sources to make myself a 12 inch wide column initially. And then Indofab made me one and then we started carrying them and making them. They're, it's, it's amazing to work with such a wide column because Magsil is not a chromatography media. It's an absorbent. It works kind of like a chromatography media because things get slowed down by it, but it really is going to grab onto certain things and not let them go. So you don't really have to consider a tall column uh, effective. You need a lot of volume to go through. A uh, 12-inch wide column is the widest I've gone with being able to get the media to settle. So while I'm Doing the water washes, I'm actually doing two things at once. I'm prepping the column. In my lab, I always do two and a half things, never three. That's my, my rule. It's a real stupid rule. It sounds stupid, but I can do two and a half things and not make a mistake. If I try to do three things, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can vouch for that one. That's for sure. So I prep the column by adding my media with no solvent first. Um, I bang on the side of it with a dead blow hammer because it's made out of stainless. I don't like using glass anymore. It's it's kind of unsafe. And I mean, who wants a 12 inch wide glass column? I have it, but who wants it? Do you want it? Well, we got them. <laughs> um, this is part of that gear sale we've been yeah, talking about. I do have that. It's actually full of Magsil still and prepped with uh, heptane. Uh, but no, no extra charge. No extra charge. Yeah, 
it's a lot of marisol <laughs> uh but yeah so based on the height um i'll add in the amount of magsil i need tap it so that it flattens out and then i put the lid on it because i had them make me a lid that has all the attachments i need and i'll draw heptane through the bottom uh, underneath by pulling vacuum on it and what that does is it allows me to smack the side of the stainless and all of it, it effervescates or it gets all of the uh, magsil to plume out and and loosen up so that there's no air bubbles. Because okay. anytime you do chromatography or any type of filtration through media, it channels or wants to easily because it, it'll just find those spots or you'll have magsil that won't get hit. So then you didn't calculate the amount of magsil you needed correctly because how do you know if you have a you know, a, a little section that's not getting used. So I'll do that probably 10 times where I pull all the, pull solvent through the bottom to where I've actually filled it to where there's, it's above the magsil layer and stuff's starting to kind of float. And I'll, I usually have a column that's twice as high as my, my bed height so that I can fill it all the way up with heptane and then allow things to kind of plume out and all the magsil to go everywhere by banging on it and getting it to, I literally hit that thing with a dead blow as hard as I can because it's stainless, it ain't gonna dent. Um, and so that's the, I get the, get the anger out, just <laughs> get the anger out of the column. Oh, man, I've been awake for three days. <laughs> you don't even know, man. <laughs> yeah, totally though. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I get that about 10 times until I really feel like I've gotten all the air out. You can usually see the bubble level and like, if they're nice and big, you're like, oh, I got that section loose, you know, because usually on a 12 inch wide column, you'll end up with like a little wedge in the corner that's just totally white when you go to dump it out and you're like, oh, such a waste. Uh, so I do that about 10 times. And by the time I'm done with that, the uh, solution has had all the water removed from it. And I'll then use the vacuum on the um, the column to draw the fluid out of the top of the uh, reactor into the the uh, chromatography column, into the giant magso column is what I call it. Now, with your rig, how do you disperse the liquid coming into the magso column? So gently, I typically will leave a uh, about an inch to two inches of um, fluid above the magso so that I don't beat it up. And then also inside my system, it has a uh, spray ball that I've filled with glass beads because the spray balls, you have to have high flow in order to actually get them to disperse. But I filled it with glass beads so that it would actually work a little bit better. Um, and that throws it against the walls and the walls rain down. And if you can get that to do that all the way around, that's awesome. But it also throws some stuff straight down and out at angles and whatnot. But it kind of beats it up pretty evenly. Okay. Um, if you, I've tried spraying it in directly through the top. It doesn't detriment too much. If you overshoot the magsil quantity by like an inch or two of height, you're usually safe uh, as long as you don't pull it in too fast. But I leave that extra liquid layer so that I also don't beat it up too much. And then that first little batch of like, I fill it up probably about a quarter of the way, let that drain into the system so that I'm really into the cannabinoid fraction um, before I really fill the whole vessel. Because if you dilute it any more than like a one-to-one -one of heptane or a two-to-one heptane, it tends to run past the maxil a little bit because there's so much room between each molecule. It doesn't necessarily have a chance to see maxil all the time. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so I'll then fill it up all the way and allow it to drain into a carboy. Um, and you can tell 
the amount, usually I, f I drain out until I've gotten about the same amount of heptane that I put into the column. And then I'll guesstimate that that's when the THC starts because the first batch of THC that comes through or cannabinoids that come through actually is clear. But if you look at it like through glass, it'll look like there's little striations uh -huh. in the liquid and that's when you know it started. And, but if I, I figure if I put the same amount of carboy, if I put a carboy of uh, heptane into that column, I should get a carboy out before I see material. So you kind of close your eyes and guess at it. Um, I know you've gone back and tested that heptane yeah. after it comes out. Oh yeah, there's usually <laughs> nothing. I mean, if there is, it was probably residual on the walls or something or still in the heptane from before. But uh, yeah, it's, it's usually pretty close. And I, I usually switch it early just because I want to get everything. Um, and then I allow that all to go through and usually follow it with about a column to a column and a half worth of solvent or until it runs clear. Uh, because when it goes through Magsil, it's not going to come out all clear. You're going to get this kind of gold fraction, which looks a little bit better than what you put into it. But the amount of stuff it pulled out is amazing. So going through Magsil, uh, you should then go directly back into the reactor. So because I want to clean every system before I go on to the next system, the heptane that's going to follow it into the, the I'm sorry, into the Magsil column, I put into that reactor and just suck it back out. I've spun it a little bit to kind of clean these side walls. And then by the time I've gotten all of that stuff done, I'll just throw it all back into the reactor. And it's usually about... 40 to 50 liter milliliters, 40, 50,000 milliliters, so 40, 50 liters of um, heptane solution. And with a 50 liter, you should have about 10 liters of volume room. And I mix that, I mix in another, another bucket of saline after that. So I've got to redo another saline wash. The reason being is because you want to buffer um, any possible, uh, high pH that the Magsil caused to the oil, you have to fix that just in case. So I hit it again with two washes of citric acid at four to five. The reason being is the first one might only get you down to six pH on the material and the second one definitely gets you down to 4.5. So always two. And that's typically five um, 14 gallon containers, which ends up being about 20 gallons of, of water which is why I use that 20-gallon tank because it's the exact size I need for this entire run. My run size is typically 10 to 15 liters. Um, and this all, this is still day two. So from here... That's quite a day. Yeah. It's, it's usually that second day ends up... I mean, the first day can be between, I want to say, 14 to 24 hours. Second day can be between 14 to 36 hours um, all in one shot. No drugs! So, uh, caffeine, <laughs> lots of caffeine, but no, you just, there's ways to keep yourself awake with crazy hours. And I learned them way sooner than this. But, uh, after that, um, you remove all of the, all of the saline and then you do two water washes, which means you just take the regular water and you're going to mix it against. And what this is going to do is remove any residual salt. So you really don't want to have salt in your material, um, when you go into a wiper or when you go into a boiling class because that salt can scratch things and you really don't need it in there. So, I And you also don't need the material at 4.5 pH. You need it at neutral. So I just take water, I throw it in there, mix it against it. That gets me pretty close to uh, neutral and then I do it a second time. That gets me all the way to neutral and remove any residual salt that's possibly in there. 
And those two water washes, it should be really difficult to actually mix that water into the oil because they are so polar and nonpolar. So it should really stay separated and you're just trying to mix it against it as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. So remove all that water every little bit you can and then I suck it back into the roto through that hot loop. I've heated it up to about 120 C and it's already going with a full vacuum and a cold trap on it. I always use a cold trap on my rotos because I run them so hot. Uh, usually I use a Savant at negative 106 C. Um, so from there, pull it back into the cold or into the heat loop into the uh, roto 120 C. I've only got about 40, 40 liters of uh, heptane in it. So that should take me a, no more than an hour or two hours to remove all that solvent. And from there, I'll heat it back up to 155C again and try to remove any residual heptane while it's under vacuum. And from there, while it's still hot, um, I will usually let it cool down to 100C and then I'll pour it directly into a boiling flask. Or when I go into a wiper, I have a siphon tube that actually goes into my roto and I can draw directly into my hopper for my wiper. Oh, that's great. So you never have to pull it off there. And since you've got an oil bath, you don't want to really mess with that. Yeah, that was my first response. I think there's. I'm actually on a thread uh, on Future 4200 talking with uh, King of the Kush about that, about like, man, how, how do you even deal with an oil bath on your <laughs> roto to run so hot? Like, no, thank you. I don't want to mess with that, but that makes yeah, more it's sense. Yeah, really, it's really messy, and it's also pretty dangerous with a 50-liter because, I mean, I got some serious hands, but trying to hold on to a slick ball covered in oil and trying to hold it in one place while you pour out of it, no. You can wipe that thing down with as many paper towels as you want, waste all the paper towels, which is, we're still going green here, guy. So we're going to make sure that we actually not waste a bunch of paper towels. So I try to siphon it, and I found that if you just unscrew the ball roll it over to one side and then just keep it in place and put the siphon tube in, which is made out of stainless. So you just draw into it with vacuum on the, on the uh, hopper cart. You just draw it all into that hopper cart and then just go wheel it back over to the wiper and hook it up to the wiper and it's ready to go. Nice. So, I mean, those were, that was an iteration I made off of uh, a setup that Beacon Wrench came out with. I just kind of modified it. So it had all the bells and whistles I needed and I made their, they put a, a heated line on it, and so I attach the heated line to the top. So it's usually attached to the pump and goes into your wiper. Mm -hmm. Attach it to the top and use the heated line to keep the stuff still fluid because if I removed all the heptane and it's down at 100C, it might actually clog that that tube and not get into the, the hopper. So I actually heat up that line and attach like a two-foot uh, stainless uh, tube, just some more stainless tube directly into the hopper, and that way it's a short distance and then it gets reheated. And I keep the hopper at full vacuum the whole time because anytime this stuff now sees oxygen, it's going to oxidize immediately because the it's so pure that you've removed – so you've removed all of the antioxidants. Like there is antioxidants in cannabis. And the reason why some people's oil doesn't oxidize is because it actually has antioxidants that are ingrained into it. Or they've Which had – Which are impurities. Impurities, yeah. yeah. And we're going for high purity. Um, either that or it's got uh, – a lot of people use vitamin E because it's an antioxidant or they used uh, ascorbic acid and those things work. Citric acid even works but those are contaminants to me. I don't want any of that stuff in this oil. We're going to try and keep it as pure as possible, not touch it with anything. So from there, I mean I would normally nowadays go into a wiper because short path for first pass, wiper for second pass. Short path is great at heads fraction. Second pass on a wiper is great at stripping that tails fraction. But if we're going back into a short path – I've taken that ball off 
cleaned it off as best I can and poured that material directly back into a boiling flask. So from there, I'll set up a perfect system of short path. Um, everything has been cleaned thoroughly, acetone washed, um, all the joints have been prepped and there's no sealing issues that are going to happen. Uh, all my stainless has been cleaned thoroughly. It's even, I usually acetone wash those too. And the pump gets down to negative four or below, or it gets tossed to the side. I usually have three um, Edwards 30s or Casogen CRV 36s kind of rotating, depending on what's the cleanest. That'll be my second pass uh, um, uh, pump. And then I'll also attach a diffusion pump and a Sojvac. So the Sojvac, and that's why I have that extra manifold. That manifold made it so that I can put the manifold on top of the Sojvac, and then it has two arms that usually go to, one goes to an Edwards 30 by itself, the other one goes to us um, a diffusion pump into an Edwards 30, or some combination of the sort. You prefer diffusion over turbo? Safer. Um, if you've ever had anything break near a turbo, like glass break or any type of oxygen, that thing can become a bomb. It will launch, it's a turbo, it's a turbine pump. Literally, they're spinning blades. They don't care if it's like there's no air or if there's air. And if they see air, especially on a short path, where there's a lot of glass that could potentially break in the middle of a run for any reason, that thing can rip its way out of there. And from what I've heard from the owner of Provac, he said he's seen one actually go through a wall, like a cinder block wall. And maybe not the small ones, but I mean, I don't really want my whole $40,000 glass system getting torn apart by this thing and then possibly getting hit in the head by a turbine going flying. So Fair enough. And also vapor can cause it too because it can destabilize the blades and then get thrown. They're going around at about 45,000 to 62,000 RPMs. I don't want to risk that. A diffusion pump can light on fire. Yep. But it's really rare, and usually all it does is it'll smolder the oil and turn it into a polymer, and then you just got to clean it out. So I've never had that happen, knock on something that's not here. Um, but typically I use diffusion for those reasons. Okay. But I like keeping my diffusion pump and my Edwards 30 clean. So the Sojvac will remove the first couple fractions because there'll be some heptane left in the material. For a 20-liter system, like 10 to 15 liters of oil, there will usually be about a liter of heptane in it. Still, even at boiling flask of uh, 155 Celsius on the rotovap, because you just can't get it all out until you start really heating it under good vacuum. So from there, I set up the short path. I pull down as best a vacuum as I can with the Sojvac, and then I cook it to about 140 Celsius with the Sojvac, and that'll usually remove most of the heptane into the cold trap. Sometimes I'll go up to 180 and I'll close the vacuum. And as long as you're at 1500 micron and 180 to 190 Celsius, you won't pull main body. So even though you've got that high temperature on that boiling flask, 1500 micron, you'll be, you'll be safe. So you just close the valve on the Sojvac and it'll, it'll really thin out that oil so that all of that, that, uh, um, heptane can come out. I'll cool it back down to about hundred Celsius. So I'll go make myself another sandwich for today. Cause you know, that's my half-hour break. So far, all you've eaten is one sandwich in two or three days. I've had two sandwiches. <laughs> I had one I had one in the first heating up and one in the second cooling down. Because um, you want to make sure on the second pass that you're below 100C. Otherwise, you will start to see oxide layers. And if you're going for water clear, you're going to get pink. So I try to avoid it. So I'll let it cool down, still under the Sojvac. And then when it's cooled down, I'll remove the 
the cold trap flasks and usually a lot of times remove one of the cold traps real quickly so that I can get any ice that's built up in there because there could be residual water, all sorts of things that can get stuck. So I'll usually swap cold traps and then the diffusion pump's already hot. So I'll hook it all back up. I'll pull vacuum with the Sojvac so that I get to about 100 micron to 250 micron, depending on how dirty it is. And then I'll switch over to the diffusion pump and close down the Sojvac, turn it off. And then I'll heat back up from there as the pressure is going down. Usually the diffusion pump will, on mine I use Santavac, uh, what is it called? Santavac 5 or something like that. Um, the Santavac oil. It's about $1,000 for 500 grams. And I actually... I got a couple calls from the government when I ordered it because it can be used for purposes like uh, uh, uranium purification and stuff. So, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Don't use that one. There's no point to it. I found that the DC-103, I believe it is, there's 703, 103, DC-703 uh, is all you need. It's the cheapest oil um, because you only need to get down to 10 to the negative 5 at most. So if you really – Spend some time with your diffusion pump on its own. Like you put a valve directly on it, put an Edwards third behind it. You can tailor in the ultimate vacuum of it to as low and as stable as you can get, which means what you do to do that is you have the temperature stable on the coils and you adjust the voltage of the heater under underneath, which is boiling the oil inside of it. I mean, you have to kind of know what a diffusion pump does in order to actually know how to do this. But diffusion pump boils oil and it fires it through jets, and that pulls um, gas molecules through it really quickly. And you can stabilize that by changing the voltage in order to match whichever oil you're working with. The cheaper the oil, the lower the voltage because it doesn't need much much to actually boil it. It's not as pure. They each have their own vapor pressure at 25C. And you can tell how good a a diffusion pump oil is by how low of of a vapor pressure it has, which you can actually use THC as a, a diffusion pump oil. Um, if you didn't worry about the oxidization and polymerization, it, it, it like eventually occurs. But that's something I've like looked into building heads with. I, I've designed a head that works like a diffusion pump in order to purify the the heads fraction out of it. Mm. So if with the series of jets, you can actually get it to reflux, and that will actually get the uh, heads fractions to come out. And I haven't made it yet. I really wanted to make it out of glass, but everybody that I've talked to is too scared to try and make it because it's complicated. But because um, you have to actually make it like almost like a, a ship in a bottle, so yeah. it's pretty difficult. But it would look really cool. Yeah, that in glass would be ridiculous. Yeah, it was just so pretty though. Like I just I want a two liter one. Just one of these days, somebody make me a thing. Uh, so usually use like DC seven hundred three, and if you get the voltage correct, I use a um, attenuator. Um, to actually like adjust the the voltage down to about 180 volts versus 200 on mine, and it's like 188 or something voltage, and from there I'll see the vacuum stabilize about 10 to the negative six, which it should only get to 10 to the negative five. So so you're making the decision to adjust the voltage on the heater on your diffusion pump based on the stability of the vacuum on your vacuum gauge. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and you don't have to. You can usually close your eyes and it'll definitely work. But if you don't do that and you're using too hot of a temperature for uh, like some of the cheaper oils, it'll push the diffusion pump oil either into your Edwards 30 or back into the system. So I try to keep the diffusion pump oil specifically out of the pump 
if it goes to the cold trap, it's not a big deal. But because, I mean, even if it's in the system, it's not getting past the cold trap. You're pulling in one direction. But the diffusion pump oil inside the Edwards 30 will typically actually make the vacuum on the Edwards 30 go up, which can make your diffusion pump less efficient or turn off. Because you have to be below 50 micron for that diffusion pump to turn on. Otherwise, it doesn't. Some, some people are like, oh, my diffusion pump doesn't work. And I've gotten a couple diffusion pumps because they're like, it doesn't work. And then I put oil in it because there's no more oil in it because it all got sucked into the pump and suddenly it works again. It's like they're, they're such simple systems that really you can't screw them up unless the heater dies. Uh, so I've already gotten that stabilized. I know that works. So I've got the vacuum depth down to 10 to the negative 6. I open the vacuum to that. It gets down to 10 to the negative 4 to 10 to the negative 5. Usually 10 to the negative 5 within a, a short path 20 liter. Uh, from there, I go for main body, and it's the same principle of starting at 190 Celsius on the condenser, and the boiling flask is at about 140. So I start the inverse relationship and start bringing up the boiling flask temperature and lowering down the condenser. And you'll usually end up at about, with 10 to the negative 4 or 5, you'll end up with about 140 to 160 Celsius on the condenser, and about 178 to 193, depending on how fast you want to go, on the boiling class temperature. And that's usually where it stabilizes. The reason why this is higher uh, on the condenser, sorry, nobody sees my hands. I'm sitting here doing puppets, but um, the reason you see a higher temperature on the condenser is because the oil's more pure. There's less heads fraction in it. Anytime you have a lighter boiler next to a heavier boiler, it will drag it um, through a process. People know this because they lose terpenes to their butane. It goes, the butane goes back into the, uh, into your reservoir and your uh, your shatter is now uh, odorless. So the drawing of that, the, the process of drawing that is what you're trying to avoid. But because there's not much heads fraction in it, it's easier to use a higher condenser temperature and still get most of the distillate. This stuff, when it's water clear, should literally, you have to chip at it with like a screwdriver or something to actually get it to, to break apart when it's room temp. Okay. So back in the day, I mean, we're talking about short path. I didn't have a um, a gear pump on my outlet. I was just doing it into a flask. So once I got that temperature correct and I was only seeing main body drip, you roll down that 10 liter flask or 20 liter flask, depending on how much is gonna be in there. Uh, if you're doing a 10 liter run, I put it in a 20 liter flask oftentimes just in case it's more than 10 liter can hold. And just so it's not so awkward to try and like take that flask off and stuff. So I'll roll down the 20 liter flask and then I'll just capture my body at about 193 Celsius typically. Fast as you can go without pulling that yellow fraction over. Once I've gotten all that, you'll start to see a little bit of a color change as well as the, if you have a, a, a vapor thermometer, in the actual head, you should see a six degree increase in temperature because it jumps up to the next boiler. And you'll start to see this color change and that's when you switch over to your um, your tails fraction. I'll usually collect that and then reuse it in MagSail, put it with the original first run tails and rainy day fun. That goes into the rainy day fun. Yeah, so your tails fraction in this though is gonna be much more potent than your original yeah. tails fraction. You can sell it as like um, a yellow oil or like, you know, a it'll still be about 90, 90%, but... It's funny that your tails fraction is 90% because you're like, I'm yeah. going for water clear. I mean, everybody, they, people used to make fun of the fact that I my first pass looked like a lot of people's second pass, but it's like, you, you going for the ultimate ultimate goal is to be as pure as possible. So mm. my clients would typically want water clear only. If it had any color and volume, they were upset. I had to be very strict with, with the product because 
I wanted to make the extra money as well as I really, I enjoyed making the most pure product I possibly could. Well, yeah, you're, you're, you're playing the game the best you can play the game and that's your victory lap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, not, I just, I'm not the type of person to be happy with going home after making a bunch of yellow 93% or oil. If it's not tipping the scale on their testing potency of like 99 plus, because my, my testing usually will say 99% plus because they they can't say it's 106 because it's not 106. It's just more pure than their sample. Yeah, and because standard. of their margin of error that they've yeah. got there, sometimes they do come in above 100, but they don't want to put that out or it makes them look bad. Well, with testing, uh, if you if you have a standard and you have it in the freezer at negative 80 and you pull some out to put it in the, in the machine, it's going to degrade while it's been out. If you leave that standard out for a day, it will lose 10% potency before putting it into the actual machine. So if they have old standards that they're still pulling from in order to test against, it's not gonna be as pure. And you have to constantly use new standards because the machine, it, it adjusts over time. The columns change, you know, depending on how pure the product you're putting into it will change it. So, uh, I mean, you have to also know your perfect dilutions. There's a lot of details there too. So because of that, if their testing uh, standard is like, been left out for a, a total of a quarter day and they're testing only against a, a purity product that's 95% pure and I test above 95%, I'm now showing 101 or above. So that's how that ends up working. Uh, but, you know, really pure oil. That's the, that's the goal. So from there, um, typically I will take that flask this is, this is day three. This, this distillation happened on day three. I put it into the flask on day two, but I let it cool overnight. Um, through the, the, uh, I threw the system together, pulled vacuum on it, and left it under vacuum overnight just so that it wouldn't oxidize. But day three, so I, I did sleep. I've slept a total of two nights, and we're going for, we're going for 10 liters of oil. Uh, so while it's still hot, I'll throw it into a spare 20-liter mantle. And I'll keep, I'll get it moving with a stir bar at about 60, 80 Celsius so that it's all liquid. Usually you pick up the flask and you can see where the puck is. There's like a puck of solid and the puck will usually slide down to the bottom because the oil will kind of move around it and this heavy puck will slide down. Once you no longer see that puck, I'll have all my vessels for transfer of the material laid out. So I'll have, you know, usually I use ball jars because they are actually better than a lot of the the lab glass, just in, for a lot of reasons, but price, the fact that I could vacuum seal them, a lot of different things. But back in the day, what I would do is uh, then take that entire flask with a couple of heat gloves and I would go through and I would, while holding it the whole time, I'd put the the jar, they're already pre-teared. Every single jar is teared. I, I measured down to the 0.1 gram because I was paying me per gram and they wanted things to be exact. So I put the jar on my scale. I pour in exactly half a liter or up to 800 grams. A half liter, liter versus gram is just a term. Term is like the, Gotta the slang. Gotta love this business. Yeah, the slang is, the slang of one liter isn't actually a liter, it's one kilogram. So you pour in one kilogram, or sorry, half a kilogram to 800 grams into the jar tip it back up, slide off the little amount of drip that's gonna happen, pull that jar off, put it aside, put another one on, while still holding this flask in one hand, it's a 20 liter, hot as fuck, and put the jar on there, pour another one, 
take it off, put it, pour another one. Do that for, you know, if you've got 10 liters, you're doing 20 jars. So, and then when, once those are all done from one pour, I put the flask aside. It might have a little bit of material in, but I'm just going to put that with the Schwill and Rainy Day Fund and everything. But all those jars then get vacuum sealed with the um, food saver system that it has a little connector that goes on the top of the jar lid for a, a ball wide mouth jar. Pull vacuum on it. It pulls all the vacuum out of the jar, sucks down the lid, and you just cap it, weigh it, cap it, weigh it, cap it, weigh it. There's one of those about... Four feet from us right now. <laughs> yeah, those things are great. <laughs> I still use it. You know, I still used it until I, I finished. But they, they're super essential when, when you're trying to work with water clear because even though you'll end up with a tiny amount of oxide layer because it's, it's in, impossible not to. Like if, if anybody tells you their stuff doesn't oxidize, it's either impure or it's had stuff added to it or they're lying. Um, but if you vacuum seal it or even use argon as well, like – Nowadays, when I have the, the gear pumps, I'll be pouring th with argon spraying into it. Mm -hmm. uh, that system Indofab did that just – it actually disperses it really evenly. Um, I'll still vacuum seal it even though it has argon in it. And then I will um, uh, from there put it aside. And I've got – I've had oil that's lasted over eight months and the oxide layers never changed of water clear because as long as you keep it in kind of the dark – so that it doesn't mix or heat up and move around. Um, that oxide layer actually protects the rest of the oil. So typically put it aside for sale or whatever they're going to do with it because I don't do any sales or anything. And um, I'm done. Nice. So that's that is three to three and a half days total. It is a marathon of a run. I thought I was yeah. going to be getting like a six-hour short path SOP out of you when I asked that question. <laughs> oh, you asked for the whole thing. Should we cut this out? <laughs> no, no. This is gold, man. I was eventually going to try to pick parts of this out of you though, as we went along, but I got the whole yeah. process, and that's fantastic. That's, that's the – pretty much the same thing happens with a wiper. I just have very particular ways I run a wiper, and I found I get the same product in a little bit less time but a lot less cleaning. That's, that's the benefits of a wiper. It's like if you're doing batches, short pass fine. If you're doing continuous and you have two wipers, obviously go two wipers. I will, you know, totally, if you give me the option, I'll yeah. go two wipers. But That's what we had was one wiper into another, and it was just like the easiest thing. Well, the, the first wiper I use for first pass and terp pass and stuff like that, the second wiper is only for second, second pass. But I don't do it. I still do that separate area where I'll do winterization after that first pass in a wiper. And I'll do the uh, Magsil as well. So there'll be heptane going through that second wiper. That is very unique to you. I've never heard anybody else describe doing things well, like that. Winterization? Yeah, the, the winterization after the first pass. Yeah. A wiper, I mean, you, you can do the same thing. The lipids are just as slick. It, the main problem ends up being any granule pieces. Like if you get BHO that has a, they, they burst one of their filter pl plates or their papers or whatever, you'll end up getting a lot of material and that can gum up the pumps. But for the most part, the wiper doesn't care. Um, you can throw pretty much anything at them. The pumps are what get pissed at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bought a lot of pumps. Uh, I fixed a lot. I fixed a lot. I learned how to pull the gear pumps apart and tear into them. The worst one is uh, ethanol sugars. Mm, that's why I bought a lot of pumps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you burn out the gear, uh, the motor is if you just keep it going, you have to usually take those things apart and start from scratch. And they just, sometimes they don't come apart. Um, the Chemtech ones, they are pressed together with a um, um, 
Harbor Press. And so you can't take those apart even if you want to unless you have the specific dies to pop it apart. Because I've tried. I tried on one of those Is this things. a recent machine? Uh, last three or four years, yeah. Okay, yeah, I was just talking to him at, at BizCon this year, uh, and they had mentioned a new a new, a new gear pump. So oh, okay. That maybe yeah, that has to probably, do with it. Probably one of the reasons. Uh, they're also overkill. Um, I mean, I don't want to really, you know, trash talk any one company. They're all terrible. No, uh, I mean, I just, I think that some of the design patterns on, on wipers, they tend to run the pumps at full bore for the outlet pumps, and... I, I like the Beaker and Wrench ones or the Summit ones where you can actually tailor in the speeds so that you're not really running that motor or those gears overkill. Yeah, there's no reason it needs to be on-off. No. Yeah, they're, they're at full tilt a lot of times, and it doesn't help you. As well as their their motors are kind of sized for RPM versus torque, and there's two different schools of thought on how motors are supposed to work. But if you're trying to go slow, you need a high-torque motor. And a lot of times we're only running at like six liters an hour. So you need a torquey motor that can handle those low speeds, especially on the tar side if you're only getting about like one to two liters of tar at an hour. And I want something, especially in a wiper, that I can fine tune so that mm-hmm. I can really dial in how fast it's moving so mm-hmm. I can walk away from it and I'm not going to get build up on one yeah. side or whatever else, you know. I used to do that on my wiper. I'd actually turn my, my uh, outlet pump off on the distillate side and allow it to fill to two liters because my eight inch could handle filling two liters. Then I could fill four jars at once. Yeah. Yeah, then, <laughs> but you have to come back in 33 minutes. <laughs> Depending on how fast your wiper is. I mean, my wiper was running over three liters an hour on the distillate side. So that was about 33 minutes. I could go between, if I really needed to, I could run to grab food and then come back. Uh, dude, you get stuck in traffic and you're stressing. It's 12 minutes there, 12 minutes back. <laughs> I call. They already know my order. It's laminated in the back. I go to the same place. I'm creature of habit and I go to the same place to get food. And they literally have my order laminated. So. I love it. I walked out of the lab one time uh, down to 7-Eleven just to grab a snack because I'd been in there forever. And uh, Come out and it was like, it's light again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, I got caught up. I think somebody I knew pulled up at the gas station next to 7-Eleven and I'm talking to them. And then like mid-conversation, they didn't exactly know what I did for work. Mid-conversation, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm going to go. <laughs> just take off running. <laughs> yeah, took off running because I had forgotten what I, what I was doing. Yeah. I have a, I used to put cameras up to be able to handle all that i mean there's cameras in the legal spots but in general like i would put one that was just like a little camera that would face the thing so that i could see it while i'm like i'm like oh it makes me feel comfortable while i'm out because if you're out and something's running even though you know you're gonna have time you're still just fretting the whole time something's gonna go wrong well anybody that's ever cleaned oil up off the floor never wants to do it again you have to throw it all away so not worth it it's not worth leaving it's like i could have dealt with not having that soda really could have (laughs) not I've had my two-inch Pope. I put a jar under, and it was only collecting at like 500 milliliters an hour. So I thought I could leave for a good, you know, 20, 30 minutes. It rattled the jar out of alignment, and so it just started pouring on the fucking table. And I lost the entire liter. Like, it happened like two minutes after I left because I did the math, and I'm all, I got nothing. Like, what? But you learn, and you experience, and you gain PTSD, and then at some point you either burn out or you leave. (laughs) Well, that's a, a good transition into what's what are you doing now? What how often do you find yourself in a lab? Never again. No, I I actually don't know what I'm going to do as far as labs go. I I was working with a partnership that I was really looking forward to, but I think personally I have just kind of gotten to a point where being in a lab 
really kind of crushes my soul a little bit. I took a three-month trip, or three, I wish it was three months, took a three-week trip and uh, really did a little bit of soul-searching while driving cross-country. And I just haven't had a chance to do that in so long. It was just so amazing that I really don't think I can handle being in a lab for extended periods of time. But right now, right now the plan is to work and make shovels. I want to make all the gear that uh, people need for stuff because I've done all of the experimentation. I know what things should work and what I want is bells and whistles and what I don't want, what I think is just kind of just gear that people don't need. And so, you know, it's with, with Indofab specifically, it's where it's, you know, we're the, the people that made the product that are now making the gear to make the product. So, yeah, that's the best people to deal with. Yeah. I mean, especially if you have troubleshooting questions or you want something custom. Because a lot of people kind of come with like a rough idea of what they want custom and you're like, I know how to make that work. You know, I mean, uh, doing a dual cold trap, like what type would you want and how big? They're like, well, I don't know. I want it, I want it big enough to do this. And oftentimes the person will just make you something just to make the money. But it's like I know exactly what would work based on the system because I've tried them all. I will have them all for sale. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to make shovels, I think, for now. But overall, I think personally I'm going to separate myself a lot of, in a lot of ways from industry-related stuff. My Instagram, I've, I almost kind of set a fire on my Instagram and just have I, waited until uh, yeah, it pretty much burns itself down. I really have put my opinion out there rather than making posts, mainly because I just haven't been spending much time learning new things. And the posts have always been my journal and then sharing what I've learned. But if I'm not learning anything new, I have nothing to provide. And when COVID happened, we all had a ton, ton of time to sit at home. I mean, I, I made oil, but, you know, I for when I wasn't making oil, I was just reading all the news and just realizing how screwed the world was when I was sitting in my cave slash lab and realizing that things are serious. And if you have a platform, why not spend time actually, like, trying to get information out there no matter what it is. So taking 20,000 plus followers, which it was up to 25,000 and I have burned it down by 5,000, which includes probably some people I've added or that have added me, but also I've blocked a ton of people. I've just disconnected, but I felt it was more important to shed a light on, at least with the science with COVID for a while, where I'm like, here's ways to actually protect yourself. Here's how masks work. Here's why what you're seeing on the news is not true or is true. And then with I'm absolutely rights activist. I, I will not not say something if something happens. So said a lot about that and had a lot of death threats. A lot of people that hated me for it. But I mean I'm gonna let it burn down because to be honest, I'm kind of fed up with a lot of stuff. Um, not just with this industry and with people's integrity with either their green taxing things or selling you a product and lying about it, like with the DA mark D eight market. I really try to separate myself from all of that, but also say something because I can't be quiet. I was quiet as a kid because I had autism, but once I was able to have my own voice, I really, it's hard to shut me up, as you've noticed. <laughs> I, I love it, man. I'm looking at the, the clock here on, uh, on how long we've been rolling, and we just hit three hours and almost 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, you got um, a lot of work. <laughs> it, it, this will be a long edit, but it'll be well worth it. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly respect your uh the noise that you've made i mean and, uh, depending on the size of your soapbox to stand on as well as you know what your avenue of what you're trying to do or how your outlet works because some people may have some other outlet they use like facebook or just in person maybe they go down to their courthouse and make decisions there but 
if you've got a big soapbox, I feel like a lot of the companies will be like, hey, why do you bother with that? I mean, like, isn't that ruining your reputation? I'm like, it's not ruining my reputation. It might be ruining my fan base. But to be honest, if you're not doing it and you have that avenue and you're not doing anything else, why are you not using it? Like, I feel like you're too scared to lose money or lose followers. I never care. I, like, I enjoy all the people that have been there. I enjoy helping people. But I don't care about being a celebrity. It's not That's not why I do it. It's not why I have done it all. So for me to burn it down, I'm only burning down the concept of what I didn't care about. Like, people will always come to me for questions because they know I'll answer. But if they hate me because I'm against the idea of Trump or the against idea of racism or can see through stuff and actually see racism where it is or really want to make sure that I stay healthy and keep the people around me healthy and they hate me for that and they don't want to answer, ask questions, I don't need them around anyway. They're good. <laughs> I can really get down to it. Like, that's the logic behind that. I hear you. Well, I, uh, I'm in agreement with uh, the majority of the things that you post. Yeah. You don't have to say all because I know there's some stuff that's probably terrible, but... You know, I'm not always right. I don't claim to be. But for the most part, I really try to think before I act. And burning it down to the degree I have, you know, has been – there's been some thought behind it. It's not just completely useless. Yeah, well, I like I said, a lot of respect, man. So what's the best way if somebody wants to reach out to you to get a hold of you? Instagram. I don't usually give my phone number out because I have separated myself from the Instagram. I have always kind of – separated myself from it. I used to wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and not get out of bed till noon because I'd be answering so many questions. And I mean, it still happens like that some days, but I'll get two, 300 questions in the morning and it's like, I will answer these. I'll go through them. So Instagram is usually the way they get hold of me. I leave my phone number for friends and family just simply so that I can have a little bit of a life and go out and not feel like I'm expecting a call from somebody and it ends up being, you know, somebody who just wants to ask me a five minute question. And, you know, it's, that's, everybody's got to separate their, their work and family life. And yeah, you got to keep yourself sane. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what sane is anymore, but I should keep myself going towards that path. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, so just in case somebody that's listening to this show doesn't have you saved on their Instagram, what is your Instagram? Well, I have nine. Um, <laughs> I actually, I do have, I think, four Instagrams that are related to cannabis, but it's breaking.dabs. Or uh, Tar and Feather Farms, which is kind of more wiper information. And then I have a, a private page that is the uh, broke uh, – well, there's Broken Dabs, but that's actually run by somebody else. That's run by the guy that runs the website. He's – if you have any questions based on website issues like subscriptions, overcharging or undercharging or you can't get your, your uh, username to work, you kind of message broken.dabs. Uh, then I also have um, – Breaking Dab Studio, which is kind of – it was kind of something I was running for a while with people that were on the website for kind of private information. But at this point, I've kind of run out of the ability and the time to work on the experiments from it. So anything that we're really currently working on is going to go on the website if it's not already up. Because the website we've been – we've kind of – since COVID, haven't really had a lot of time to work on. We spent a lot of time initially really – writing i wrote as much as i could i wrote you know like what 300 pages worth of information if you printed it out but i've got a lot of stuff that i've learned since and probably some updates um my partner with it seems to think that i have updates but i think i did was a flawless person when i wrote those <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh there's probably some stuff that needs to be fixed and we're going to be working on that actually this coming week um to really start bringing back the website because since covid 
you know, things, everything kind of fell apart. There's not time to work on everything we usually could. Uh, so those are the main ones. And then I also have another secondary page called uh, Baking Dabs, which will eventually have like recipe. If I can find, um, I've either got a friend that's going to work on it or if I can find somebody who really wants to do like edible tutorials um, for recipes or even if you want to just send them in and I can throw them up on that page. The plan was with that page was to make edible recipes for people if they want to mix their own products. I love it. That's great. Baking Dabs. And then I think I have breaking guitars, which is, you know, teaching how to work on guitars. And then eventually I want to make one that's breaking glass where I take all of my old glassware that I can no longer use. And you know where this is going. Rage room. <laughs> yeah. The lab rage room. Yeah. So <laughs> the plan is to make it kind of like a jackass of just oh, smashing things. Because, I mean, I've got a lot of glassware. It's got a tiny crack in it, like a boiling flask. You can never fix those. If you get a crack in your boiling flask, toss it or keep it, you know, for, um, for just getting out that, that energy that you need to get out sometimes when extracurricular fun. Yeah. When you, when you've spent six years in a room full of China and you've been very careful and you're pretty much look like a bull, um, the idea of getting to take out some aggression on some glass later is just so relieving. Oh, so cathartic. keep my number when you're ready for this <laughs> and you need participants. <laughs> yeah. Cause, yeah. uh, Besides that glass, I've got all that stored, and I'm probably going to find that when I start pulling all the glassware I've got out. But we're going to go through also this next week all of my prior testing glass. And um, with the website, one of the other things that's going to go up is I've got the junkyard, which on the junkyard we're going to be putting up all of my old glass, um, which I call it old, but it's really in – it's either in perfect condition or I won't sell it. So – well, yeah, you need to fuel this new broken glass. <laughs> yeah, but I also have found that if you have any chip in glass and you're working with it and you heat or cool it, it will crack. So I don't want to have somebody risk that. There's no reason to have to sell that. Um, and, yeah, we need to fuel that. But uh, it's going to be all the glassware and everything that gets put up is going to be either from a very small setup that somebody needs for just putting you know food on their plate uh, all the way up to professional size setups, and it, you can even tailor it. If you want to message me directly at uh, breaking.dabs, uh, we can tailor you a setup from what I have, even if you want to message me now or whenever this this comes out, because um, I can always make somebody a system based on what they need uh, and how much they want to spend. But if you just need some parts and whatnot, everything will be separated on there. And then the junkyard is actually, if it's not free, it will be free, and it's pretty much like a Craigslist. If you want to put up anything for sale, as long as it's not product, it has to be gear with no product in it. We're not selling leaders on there, nothing like that. But if you've got gear that you want to put up, there's no money pulled out of it. It's not pay, It's not a, an eBay or anything like that. I, I don't monitor it as much as I probably could when it comes to just making sure nobody's selling any weed on it. But for the most part, it's pretty easy to get your information if you were selling weed on there and just hand it to authorities. So don't play around with it. Yeah, I've thought about that when I was like, should I put this up? Because like it really risks the ability to really transfer this. Granted, people are probably doing it on Instagram all the time. But the idea of being able to sell gear, there's no place that really does that efficiently that doesn't take money from you. And if you're trying to sell like $500 in pieces of glass and they're going to take like 6%, I mean, it's, it's not worth it. That's up. It does add up and on both sides of it, but if you have to go to eBay and have to type in the exact words to try and find that lab piece, because 
I used to hunt eBay for glassware, diffusion pumps, you name it. Like once I put up the information, the fact that you can find broken and used diffusion pumps online, they all disappeared. So if it's all in one place and you just have to scroll through it versus trying to type in the exact words for what you want, so much easier. Nice. So the, the website is Broken Dabs, correct? I believe so. It's brokendabs.com, yeah. Man, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's like every single thing that we get on a topic of, you've got all the information about. So it's very easy for it to go this long. Yeah. And, uh, Tangents. Yeah, basically, uh, I wanted to say thank you and uh, Breaking Dabs. Thanks for coming on The Modern Extractor. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you much. All right. Thanks again to Breaking Dabs for joining us today. You can find them on Instagram at breaking.dabs. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on this show, email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys are digging what I'm doing here, show me some love. Please leave me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. The more subscribers and better reviews we get, the better guests I can keep booking for you here in the future. Make sure to give Eco Green Industries a call next time you need high-quality solvents or extraction-grade gas. Use promo code MODX to get hooked up with 10% off your first order. So this marks the end of Season 5. I'm going to be taking an extended break for a while here and spending some time figuring out life on a new continent. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate all the support, the wonderful messages, and the kind words. Without all of you, there wouldn't be a show. But with you, this podcast has made the journey from an idea bouncing around in my head to a show that's been downloaded over 32,000 times from 84 different countries. So once again, thank you for tuning in. Another big thanks to the guys over here at Alt Powerhouse Studios in Barcelona for the hospitality and for the facilities to record my intros and outros to these interviews during my time here. Thank you to Isada Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, for supporting me in whatever I choose to do, and for not just being down, but excited to move across the world with me. And a shout out to the new fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into the Modern Extractor. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon.